chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read this. Four verses. I know a whopping four verses today, everybody. Uh, One minute of sermon per verse. I'm lying. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, last week, we did House Church Sunday. Anybody enjoy House Church Sunday last week? Right on. Yeah. You guys were like, man, I wish we had like a buffet every week. Uh, We had a great time. Um, If you missed it, we're so bummed you missed it. Um, But three different houses, bunch of people. um, And and it was a great little practice on what it looks like to be um, the church for many hundreds of years. Um, Really until you get to uh, the West. And, um, and so there's this idea of just being connected to each other, knowing people. And, and for many of you last week, you got to meet people that you normally wouldn't have met because of where you sit and um, taken off right away or the donuts and the whole thing. Like, it's just hard sometimes to navigate people you don't know um, in, a, in an environment like this. And so that was one of the cool things about last week. But last week when we were talking in all three different house churches, we talked about the idea of spiritual, we talked about maturity, we talked about um, some of those words that Paul was using at the end of chapter 2, and um, what Paul is getting into is this idea of what it looks like to be mature, what it looks like to be um, spiritual. And uh, when we think of the word spiritual, when, when a lot of us think of that, we think of words like invisible. We think of words like supernatural. We think of, of, of otherworldly when we think of spiritual. And uh, maybe we think of like a deep, esoteric, mystic experience with God. That's not how Paul defines spiritual. Paul, when he's thinking about spiritual, Paul means animated by the Spirit. He's saying, you are not spiritual. You're not being animated by the Spirit. You're not connected to the Spirit. See, when we're spiritual, it means that we're connected. uh, You have God's Spirit inside of you. You're connected to the Spirit. And there's actually an outcome to that. There's a ramification for what it looks like to have your life as spiritual, your whole life as spiritual. Now, if that's true, if our whole life is spiritual, every part of our life is spiritual, that means that things like paying bills is spiritual. Having friends over for dinner is spiritual. It means that doing homework spiritual. (laughs) Wish Keelan was here. Um, It means working at your job is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And so Paul's just 
he's throwing out this uh, concept, this idea to the Corinthians saying, you think you're spiritual. You think you're mature. But you're separating things. So the question, the big question for us today is, are we animated by God's spirit in everything we do? Are we connected to the Spirit of God? Because Scripture tells us that we have the Spirit, that we're animated by the Spirit. And the problem is, is that uh, for a lot of us, we think there's two different worlds. We think there's a spiritual world and a non-spiritual world. So Hebrew Scriptures actually don't have a word for spiritual. There's no word. If you, if, you, if you search the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, there's no spiritual word. The biblical authors believe that all of life was spiritual. In fact, if you look at the law, if you read the law, the Levitical law, the priestly law, what's so amazing is we read that and we're like, man, this is weird. It's talking about cleaning mold and like all these different things that are involved in the law. And the reason for that is because God believes, God was trying to communicate to the people of Israel that everything was important. Every nook and cranny of their life mattered to God. Every part, every facet of your life is actually under God's loving and gracious scrutiny. It's holistic. And so he, God really wants to be involved. God wants to uh, so badly be involved in our lives, even more so now that we have the spirit who lives in us. So if all of your life is spiritual, um, I would offer there's no such thing as a spiritual life. It's life. Because it's all spiritual. But here's the problem. We have two shaping influences in our life. Greek philosophy, okay, which is kind of what the Corinthians are dealing with, and we're going to get into that here. And for us, Judeo-Christian ethics, which is not Christianity. Just be real clear. Because Judeo-Christian ethics are influenced by Greek philosophy. So you and I have just as much of... Um, the influence of Plato in our lives as we do Jesus. And I think that's really important for you and I to understand because what I mean is, is that Greek philosophy, central to Greek philosophy is dualism. This idea of dualism is that there's a spiritual reality and there's a physical reality. Does that make sense? That there's spiritual things and then there's just not spiritual things. Or there's spiritual things, and you'll hear this word a lot, secular things, okay? And uh, supernatural, the word actually supernatural is nowhere in the Bible either. So, um, and this is a dangerous idea, dualism. It's dangerous because what it does is if you buy into this paradigm, this way of seeing the world through either spiritual or physical, okay, what's the problem with that? Most of our lives are physical. So eating food is just a physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. You've got Bible, church, worship songs, Caleb. <laughs> Real spiritual things, right? 
<laughs> and then you have physical things, you know, sports, uh, you know, whatever. You can just, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to do the whole list, right? Because my brain's not working. <laughs> Shopping. I actually wrote things down. So I wrote down barbecuing with neighbor. It's just a physical thing. But if you buy into it, then your job is just, it's just a job. It's not spiritual. If you buy into that, then grocery shopping's just a chore. Laundry, carpooling. If you buy into dualism, huge, giant chunks of your life are separated from what it means to follow Jesus. If you buy into dualism, then, 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 and then, then regular things, life, most of your life, big chunks of your life get regulated and, and stuffed into a compartment away from God's influence, away from the influence of Jesus. And then people start saying goofy things like, how's your spiritual life? Right? Like, how are your esoteric experiences with the divine? Right. <laughs> Instead of asking questions like, how is designing software going? How is teaching children that passion and calling in your life going? How is caring for your elderly parents going? How is studying at CU Denver going? How, how are all these things that are all part of your spiritual life going? Because it's life. See, dualism has this way of, it's a real dangerous thing because it really takes Jesus out of 95% of your life. And it's, and it's really, a, a, we're a product of it. We're like, um, we've just been kind of ingrained to think this way. And God's really not a fan of that. You get your Bible reading over here, your, your occasional church thing here, your whatever, and then you have everything else. So back to the letter, Paul, in his intro piece, he's talking to a group of people, and you know, we've done a lot of background in Corinthians, talking to a group of people that are in, they're ingrained in, Jew, in, in a Greek sophistry and philosophy. This is their whole life. They're immersed in it. And, and they're immersed in this idea of dualism, a spiritual world and a physical world. And, and that God and their life are two different things. And then he's addressing all these problems and issues in the community that have everything to do with that thinking. And so verse 3, when he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. See, last week we talked about, he talked about spiritual people and natural people. He said spiritual people are reconciled to God. They're, they're brought back to God through the atonement of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They have this new identity, this new life. And natural people are actually people who are pre-Jesus, pre-atonement, who are, are pre-being made right with God. He's not bagging on natural people. He's just saying there's just two different types of people. And so he's saying, you are spiritual, you have access to God, you have the mind of God, you've been restored into a relationship with your creator, but then he twists and flips it and he says, but I could not address you as spiritual. 
That's who you are, but I can't address you that way. Because he calls them mere infants in Christ. Greek sophists divided two different groups of their disciples. Remember back, we talked about uh, sophists would come into town. There would be a, uh, it would be, it's an intellectual uh, uh, speaking kind of thing. That was their entertainment. So a a sophist would show up in town and and fill an amphitheater and people would listen to the rhetoric and the, and the, and the speech of, of the Greek sophists and and what they would do is there was different sophists and they would divide into different groups and people would have different people that they followed. And, and your job as a disciple, as a follower of a sophist was not only to show up and, 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 and shout the praises of your favorite teacher, right? But it was also to bag on all the other ones, okay? And so that's why Paul is talking about this because that had actually affected the church and they were saying, we follow Paul, we follow Apollos, we follow, you know, different people. So the background of this is really, really important because what Paul is saying here is, is that I'm calling you infants because sophists, what they would do with their followers is they divide their followers in two different groups. The groups, the one group they would call telios, which would be their, their mature followers who were, who were deep intellectual and ready for, you know, Greek philosophy and metaphysics and, and some of the deep thinking and teaching. And then they had a, another group called nupios, which were infants. And they were just getting like the basics of the teaching. And Paul basically turns that around on the Corinthians, and he's attacking their pride and their spiritual arrogance, and he's saying, listen, you guys are still infants. I can't, I can't give you the big stuff. You think you're mature because you understand philosophy and everything that the sophists talk about, but you aren't mature at all. In verse 2, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. It's just kind of the imagery of a nursing mother and and, and, you know, milk, basic kind of stuff, God, Jesus, cross. Um, and then the solid food part of it, this deep, more heady, theological, doctrinal stuff. And he says, indeed, you are still not ready. Now, a little background on the timeline. Remember, Paul shows up in Corinth. He's there for a year and a half. Second longest time he's in any location planting a church. He's in Corinth for a year and a half, takes this long about route down to Jerusalem, back up and around. He's in Ephesus. We think he writes this letter at least five years later, okay? So if they became believers when he was there, this is like five years later. And he's hearing all these issues. He's hearing all these problems. And he writes this letter back five years later. And it's sorry to be a little crass, but it's like a five-year-old kid still breastfeeding. It's basically what he's saying. He's like, you should be a lot farther along than you are. He says, but you're still worldly. Now, to be precise about this, it's really important that we understand what he means by worldly. Literally, it means, it's, it's a root word, it's, it's Greek, sarkikos, and, and it's where we get the word sarks, which is the word flesh that you see a lot, 
like the, you know, the, the cravings of the flesh. There's, there's a lot of that in scripture. This is where that word comes from, fleshly or worldly. It actually means, to be precise, bodily urges and desires. Um, and there's two different ways to, you can interpret it. Bodily uh, cravings, urgence, uh, like primal animal instinct type stuff. And the part of you that's bent away from what is right. That natural default part of you that's kind of bent away from what is right. And I would define it as the leftover pieces of the old you. Okay, so the leftover pieces of the old version of you, that there are things in our lives that, yes, we are followers of Jesus, but there's still things in our lives that haven't quite been eradicated yet in us that are leftovers of, of the sarks, okay, of the flesh, of the world, and you either cave into those things or you resist those things, and, and then you grow out of those urges as you mature in Jesus, okay? You begin to see things differently, you begin to, to crave different things in your life, and you begin to move away from some of those things. And Paul says, you're still worldly, you're still living the old way, that, that narcissistic, selfish impulse and those cravings inside of you are still there, and you're still moving that way. And last week, he talked about two different ages, the present age and the age to come, and how we live in this idea that there's this storyline of the present age, and then there's a storyline of the age to come, and, and, and you're still, he's saying you're still living in that old age. You're still, you're still living in that old storyline and not the new melody, the new storyline, and you're becoming more, it, it is, you're not becoming more and more like Jesus is what he's saying. And his example, this is his example, and it's kind of weird, okay? Listen to his example. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Like, that's the thing he goes to. Like, he, he, he's, he's kind of wrapping up this whole bit of thought about division in the church. We've talked about that, um, that, that they're, they're kind of like um, still divided, and they're still not working together, and, and they're quarreling. See, when I think of worldly, I think of like clubbing on Saturday night, like, and then showing up at church with a hangover right? And he's like, you're still worldly, right? Like you're still going out drinking and partying and then you're showing, you're stumbling into church and um, you're hungover and you're sitting in the back row, like back row people, right? You know, and then like the front row people are way more spiritual like Wayne and right, right Wayne? Except for you don't have your Bible, so you lost a star. Um, but like, no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and you think all oh, the back row people and the front row people is kind of where the spirit's at. And then like the afterglow of the spirit kind of, kind of makes this. No, I'm just kidding. What I'm saying is, is like, like there's this idea, right? Like uh, of what worldly is. And, and then it says, it says this idea of this jealousy is this zeal. This is where we get the word zeal. And this idea of zeal is, is often interpreted as religious passion and fervor, okay, that leads to arrogance and fighting. Paul talks about his life before he met Christ and his zeal, okay? His zeal for the law and how it was this passion and fervor and probably led to fighting, right? Because Paul was pretty, pretty crazy, pretty bitter individual. Now, how many people in this room do you know, do you know someone who's really passionate about the Bible and theology, but they're jerks? 
Anybody? Don't point at me. <laughs> Front row people. Bailey. Um, no, it's just like this idea of like, this, this, it's not about the back row people, it's actually calling out the front row people, right? It's like Paul's like, listen, some of you think you've got it, you're mature, that you know everything, that you're, and then you're just pointing fingers at people and separating people off into camps and, and you're doing all this stuff, but actually it's not the back row people. It's not the, the, what we call the, in the church world the creasters, right? Christmas and Easter folks. It's not them. It's some of you who think you've got it all figured out. You're worldly. You're signing up for everything. You're showing up at every Bible study, but there's still something in you that's busted. And there's bickering and fighting. Listen, we live... I was talking to a friend of mine, Tim, and, and he's a much older gentleman than me, and he's like, I haven't seen our society this crazy, this divided, this angry since the 60s, since civil rights, since all of the riots and everything that was happening at that time. He's like, our country, our world, you throw in social media and politics and gun stuff and you throw it all in. It's so divided, so toxic. You can't really say anything without someone going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and yet, what are we doing? I mean, literally, what is the Christian voice right now? It's toxic. Like, I'm just going to share a couple Ryan things right now. And I know you guys are like, uh-oh. But like... How are we contributing to being different? How different is the Christian voice? Have we exchanged the gospel of the kingdom for the gospel of gun control? Or have we, changed the, have we exchanged the gospel of the kingdom for the gospel of the Second Amendment? Or have we exchanged the gospel of the kingdom for the gospel of tax breaks? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many things that we get on our horses about. And we really should only be announcing one kingdom, right? And so there's so much toxicity in our world and social media and all these things. But, but Paul's just saying, okay, how are you different? Are you, maybe you're just, just like everybody else. Should your life be different? In this day and age, should your life be different? Let me ask you, should it be different? Resounding yes, right? Like, yes. It's hard. He says, are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Uh, listen, um, if you missed the study we talked about in the church, the church breaking up into factions and stuff, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. He talks about tribes and schisms and and all these things that were tearing this, this group of Corinthians apart. And he kind of gets back to his original point that, that you're divided instead of being together on mission for your city. But let's just bring this back to us. Some of you, some of us are infants because we just recently surrendered our life to Jesus and we're, we're beginning to look what it looks like to follow Jesus and apprentice Jesus. Some of us are infants 
because we've neglected to grow. We've neglected to practice what it looks like to follow Jesus in our lives. Some of us found Jesus a long time ago. Some of you have found Jesus a long time ago, and you ne you've never grown. You've never moved down the road. You've never taken the steps in your life to examine, is my life dualistic or is my life holistic? Are, are my finances a part of following Jesus? Or if they're not, maybe that's why you haven't grown. If your finances haven't come under Jesus' lordship or, or is, is your entertainment or is your, is your shopping or is your, your relationships, no, that's off, off limits. See, the text is really, really clear. It's easy to understand, but it's really hard to live it, right? Is it just me or is it, just, is it easy to detach your spiritual life from everything else? Is it, is, that, is it just me or is that you too? Because you got God, Jesus, Bible, church over here, and then you have the rest of my life detached from the spirit over here animated by the Spirit of God is just not in the cards. I've been studying it quite a bit lately, and the TG team's totally annoyed with it, but of the, I don't think they are, but the, the early church and how the early church really grew from uh, a handful of followers to, in 300 years' time, uh, the largest religion in the Roman, in the, really in the world. And sociologists and scholars and, and everybody has, has ideas on, on all the little nuances of how that happened. One of the guys I'm reading is a guy named um, Alan Kreider, and he talks about three or four things. He says, the church grew because they were patient. They learned how to live a life of patience. They, they actually uh, took on habits and, and actually acted differently and had different structure to their life than the rest of the world around them. And they believed in the invisible power of God to show up and to do the work. In fact, this is a quote from Alan Kreider's book. He says this, when challenged about their ideas, this is the early Christians, Christians pointed to their actions they believed that their habitus, their embodied behavior, okay, was eloquent. Their behavior said what they believed. It was an enactment of their message. And the sources indicate that it was their habitus, their embodied behavior, more than their ideas that appealed to the majority of non-Christians who came to join them. See, they weren't making disciples based on telling people, about what they thought. They made other disciples based on how they lived, how their life was oriented, how their habits worked, how they shopped, how they cared for the poor, how they loved each other, how they, how they did things for the city, all these things. That's how people came to know Jesus. So as we wrap this up, two different kind of big words, one is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is, is, is right thinking, okay? Um, and the, the church in the West is really good at this. And we've got doctrine debates and we've got books to read and we've got all these things that you can learn. 
You can learn all these things about atonement and sanctification, all these big words. You can, you can split up the Bible and read it and, and know it backwards and forwards. That's right thinking. And, and American Christians are pretty good at right thinking. Then there's orthopraxy, which is right living. That's taking what you know and living it. James says that it's really silly to know everything and not do it. The interesting thing is that it was always meant to be intertwined. The early Christians had right thinking and right living. What they lived matched what they believed. In fact, people didn't even know what they believed until they saw them live. See, if you buy into dualism instead of everything being intertwined, okay, you can see a seam. Instead of things being intertwined with dualism, okay, wait, wait, sorry, instead of everything being intertwined with dualism, there's a seam between them, okay? It's what I believe, and then this is how I live, right? And pretty soon, the seam eventually, over time, becomes a crack, And then over time, the crack becomes a gap, okay? And when you're out of alignment with what you believe, seams become cracks, cracks become gaps. That gap, that gap is hypocrisy. That's what the gap is. The gap is the reason why so many people are turned off to Jesus. The gap... People usually don't have a problem with Jesus. I can have a conversation with people about Jesus and what he They'll be like, wow, that's pretty crazy. They have a problem with the gap. That they see people who talk about Jesus and claim to know Jesus living dualistically. Okay? And so you have to ask, we have to ask ourselves questions like, why am I miserable? Why is this following Jesus thing so miserable? Is it supposed to be miserable? Because I feel miserable. I don't hear God's voice. You don't hear God's voice because there's a gap. There's a gap. And it's holding many of you, many of us, in infancy from becoming the people that God has actually called us to be. And for years, we've, we've said, okay, I got my life over here, and then I'm just going to start going to church. I'm going to do the church thing. Well, then I'm going to start volunteering. See, that's still over here in the spiritual side. But God wants a whole version of you. The word repentance is about closing the gap. That's what repentance is. The Hebrew thought of the word repentance, Okay actually means to return home. That's the Hebrew thought. That the idea of home is the garden, that, that there's shalom, full peace, where everything is right, where relationship with God, where relationship with, with the world, with the earth, with each other was right, the relationship with ourselves is right. And so repent is not a nasty word. It actually means to return home, to come back, and to drag your life, parts of your life, 
back into the garden. Does that make sense? Those parts that you thought are, oh, that's not spiritual. Oh, it is. It's very spiritual. And it's inconvenient (laughs) that it's spiritual, right? And when you live your life, that when you begin to start dragging parts of your life back into, back home, you're going to experience what God wants you to experience wholly in your life. One of the ways we learn how to do this is through this retreat we do called faith walking, where it's actually a way for us to look at our life and go, where is there a gap? There's been a gap in my life, and I've lived a certain way, and I've reacted in certain ways to people, and I want to figure out why that is, and I want to drag that part back into God's realm. That's why we named our church Restoration. There is this really cool definition of it. It's about coming home. Closing the gap in your life. Living as God intended. So what we're going to do, actually, is we're going to close with two songs. And during the second song, we're going to do communion. We're going to come to the table. But during this first song, what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself questions. Okay? How am I living dualistically? How am I living in two different worlds? How, where are my gaps? Where are the gaps in my life? Where's my life incongruent? Where's my life? Where's there a seam or a crack? Where's there disparity in my life? And, and really getting to the bottom of that, some of you go, Oh, I know exactly. I know exactly where that is. I knew where that was before I showed up. Let me just tell you what full life is. When Jesus says, I've come to give you life to the fullest, this is what Jesus means. Full, holistic life. Where's there a gap? What part of your life needs to get surrendered to Jesus? Where do you need to grow? Where do you need to take those difficult steps and stop being a baby? Give us time to reflect. Let me pray.